Okay, welcome aboard once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting on the evening of November 16th. We've spoken on this podcast before about the utopian moment of 2011, which uh, was one of those years which really gave me a real uh, boost of hope. You know, there's been a few in the... <laughs> generally pretty dystopian situation of the post-Cold War order. The first sort of utopian opening of my adult life was 1989, which saw the, the revolutions in Eastern Europe and the Tiananmen Square movement in China. And of course, the, uh, the Tiananmen Square movement in China was put down very brutally, whereas the um, revolutions in Eastern Europe were uh, shortly, uh, you know, co-opted and turned into a mere capitalist restoration in those countries, as opposed to, you know, any possibilities for um, socialism with the human face, as it were. And then, you know, we got uh, another little shot of hope with the Zapatista rebellion in uh, Chiapas, Mexico, in 1994, which sort of reignited Libertarian anti-capitalist forces, I would say, <clears throat> around the world, uh, ultimately culminating in the Seattle protest against the World Trade Organization in November 1999, which set off the um, anti-globalization movement, which saw some real progress for um, a few years until 9-11 uh, happened in 2001, and that kind of... Uh, reset the stage and plunged us into a much more dystopian situation on the planet. And really the only real, uh, real significant glimmer of hope on the global stage since then has been 2011 with the Arab revolution sweeping through countries across the Middle East and the Indignado movement in Spain and the anti-austerity protest in Greece and finally Occupy Wall Street here in the United States. And that's only the most visible of many such protests which swept the entire planet in 2011. And again, this uh, historical opening was sort of followed by a, um, a thermidor or a backlash, as it were. And <clears throat> with the um, exception of Tunisia, where at least some kind of a democracy was established and there's more political freedom there, more, more elbow room for political freedom and for the left in Tunisia now than there was under the dictatorship, with that ex partial exception, uh, basically, you know, the results of the Arab revolutions have been pretty disastrous, with either dictatorships reconsolidating, such as in Egypt, or countries being plunged into civil war, and chaos, as in Libya and Yemen, and things actually escalating, really, to the point of genocide in Syria. And it's only been in the past couple of years that there have been some, you know, new flickers of protest and resistance beginning to reemerge around the world. And uh, boy, have things suddenly exploded just about everywhere, just over the course of the past several weeks. But I have to say that, you know, while um, in 2011, as in 1989, there was, it was really what I call a utopian moment. There was really a sense of, you know, windows of possibilities opening and, and real, you know, visionary thinking. Uh, this time around, there's, there's definitely some of that, much of it, very inspiring. But there's also definitely a real, a real edge of anger and desperation to uh, many of the protests which were 
viewing around the world right now. And as always, you know, I mean, the challenge is for these movements to become truly internationalized and to actually begin to build solidarity with one and other instead of being pitted against one and other. And the related question of the protesters keeping their eye on the ball and understanding, you know, that the enemy is uh, capital, the private capitalist interests, which are in power everywhere in the world, and the uh, authoritarian governments, which do their bidding, and not to, uh, you know, have the movements derailed into um, ethnic and sectarian scapegoating and ethnic and sectarian hatred and war. So... uh, we're going to do a little bit of a review here of all the various protest movements which are gaining ground around the world right now. And what are the prospects for an actual, dare we hope, global revolutionary movement to emerge in the year 2020? And what are the obstacles, the extremely formidable obstacles to that kind of thing happening? All right, let's start with Hong Kong, just because that's what's getting the most headlines although we're definitely going to be looking at many countries around the world which have not been getting any headlines. But Hong Kong certainly has. And I can't believe that, you know, this protest movement began in June. And here we are in mid-November, and the protests are as strong as ever. And unfortunately, you know, the level of of violence on both sides is really um, horrifically escalating. I have to say, I started out very, very supportive and very enthusiastic about the Hong Kong protests. And it's been, uh, you know, in the past few weeks that I'm beginning to develop some misgivings about them. Now, I have to make clear, I still support their demands. Their demand, first and foremost, was for the withdrawal of the extradition bill, which has now actually been achieved, but they have other outstanding demands, such as um, that all the protesters who have been arrested over the course of the weeks of unrest, now months of unrest, be freed and have their charges dropped, and what they're calling universal suffrage, actual free elections for the um, the executive and legislative council for Hong Kong. All right, I support these demands without equivocation, but it seems to me there's been kind of an ugly side to the politics which are animating these demands in Hong Kong, which was exemplified first by... Uh, <laughs> The fact that so many of the Hong Kong protesters appear to actually be looking to the United States and Britain as their protectors. And they've actually been, you know, showing up at the marches, waving the American flag and, you know, appealing to uh, uh, the former colonial power, Britain, to to intervene. One wonders how much of this is actually just sort of like, you know, political theater and satire, as it were. And they're just doing it because they know it's going to tweak China's political establishment or if they actually mean it. But I would argue that, you know, it's bad tactics either way. (laughs) I mean, if it's just satire, maybe it isn't bad analysis, but it's bad tactics either way. And if if it is actually in earnest, then in addition to being bad tactics, it's bad analysis. And it's playing right into the hands of, you know, China's propaganda that the protest movement is, you know, just a creation of the West. And uh, the other related element... Uh, which is cause for concern, I would say growing cause for concern in the Hong Kong protest movement is the anti-mainlander sentiment. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this notion that, you know, more and more, 
uh, seen in the rhetoric of the protesters that, you know, the mainlanders are all you know, brainwashed by totalitarianism. There was the really very, very disturbing incident, which um, we just witnessed this week, where a man who was arguing with the protesters and identifying as Chinese rather than Hong Konger was doused with petrol and set on fire by a masked and black-clad demonstrator. All right, so this is um, definitely (laughs) very, very deeply disturbing. Now, some of the things which the demonstrators have been, you know, they've been playing around with fire an awful lot, and we've, we've seen the really quite amazing photos of the demonstrators actually firing flaming arrows at the police. Well, uh... I don't know about that, but, um, you know, that's, 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 that's one thing. I'm not saying I, you know, I don't have misgivings about that as well. But, uh, you know, setting barricades on fire is one thing. And, you know, shooting flaming arrows at the police when they're charging at you, okay, that's something else. But um, setting a human being on fire, and not even a cop, but just, uh, you know, a, a heckler, basically, that is definitely way, way, way uncool. And uh, all right, it was just one incident. And like I say, you know, this protest movement is you know, at this point mobilized more than a million people in Hong Kong. And this was just one incident. But, uh, you know, I'm afraid that it's uh, not an isolated incident. I'm afraid that it's an incident which actually um, is indicative of, uh, you know, a, an ugly and chauvinistic streak in the protest movement. I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, I got to call it as I see it. And I wish that there was, you know, more um, among the people who are cheering on the Hong Kong protest, I wish there was more of a grappling with this kind of thing. You know, I'm a human being being set on fire. That's like definitely not cool. And similarly, I pointed out that, you know, during this whole period that the protests have been happening in Hong Kong, there have actually been some big protests which have emerged in mainland China. You know, most significantly uh, back in July, there was, uh, you know, big protest in the city of Wuhan in central China against a uh, a waste incinerator that the authorities wanted to build there, and the riot police were mobilized. Similarly, in August, there were worker protests and wildcat strikes in the the automotive sector in mainland China over wage arrears and other labor demands. You know, this is all pretty significant. I really wish that the Hong Kong protesters, rather than looking to Britain and the United States as their protectors were instead endeavoring to build solidarity with the protesters in mainland China. And I've seen very little of that. To give credit where it is due, a very important website based in Hong Kong, chinaworker.info, has been uh, doing really, really good work, very, very important work in terms of monitoring the, uh, particularly the labor struggles in mainland China, and has also been, uh, you know, actively supporting and in fact participating in, you know, the people uh, behind that website have been participating in the protest movement in Hong Kong as well. So they're a group that has really got their um, their eye on the ball, and uh, I encourage uh, people to check out chinaworker.info. But again, they sort of seem to be left dissidents within a, uh, a protest movement which has got increasingly disturbing politics. I hope that I'm overstating things. Again, I'm not there. I'm on the other side of the planet here in New York City. But just trying to follow it as best as I can from here. And I've got some serious questions, shall we say. Elsewhere in Asia, most significantly, big protests happening in Indonesia. I think they've kind of subsided for the moment. But when um, President Joko 
Widodo was sworn in for a second term on October 20th. Uh, it was amid, uh, you know, an official ban on protest, a curfew in place in Jakarta. The streets flooded with uh, police and military troops uh, because there had just been, uh, just had ended a, uh, weeks of student protests over a, um, a variety of issues, uh, anti-corrupt. A, a, a new law was being passed uh, to uh, basically gut the anti-corruption agency in Indonesia at the same time that the government was uh, planning to instate a draconian new criminal code. So, you know, getting tough on protesters and internal dissent and the working class at the same time that, you know, unshackling, <laughs> you know, bureaucrats and, uh, and industrialists from, uh, you know, um, anti-corruption oversight and several other reactionary measures which were being pushed through by Joko Widodo's government sparked big, big, big protests in Indonesia in the lead up to the inauguration. And for the second time this year, there had been an even bigger wave of protests in Indonesia back when the presidential elections were taking place back in April. And one of, their, um, one of the grievances of the protesters, by the way, is the flooding of military troops in the province of West Papua which all year long has seen a wave of angry protests, basically over um, independence demands. There's a growing um, independence movement in West Papua. And uh, this is a very heartening signal, okay, that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Joko Widodo has sort of been appealing to, uh, you know, Indonesian nationalism and uh, baiting the West Papua protesters as, uh, you know, separatists and splitters and using some his supporters, at least, uh, the president's supporters, have been using a very racist and ugly language about the, uh, the indigenous peoples of West Papua. And it seems like, you know, the protesters in Jakarta are not having any of it. And they're actually seeing themselves as in solidarity with the protesters in West Papua and, you know, adopted as a, one of their demands a withdrawal of, of military troops from West Papua. So that's a good sign. That's a very favorable sign. That's the kind of thing we should be seeing more of. Okay. Let's jump across the Pacific Ocean to Latin America. First and foremost, Bolivia, a really, really uh, horrific situation going on there right now, which is a lot more complicated than um, is being portrayed in a lot of the English language media, including, unfortunately, the left media in the English language world. I particularly direct people to the writings of Raul Zabechi, the Uruguayan writer who has been following the situation in Bolivia very closely. A lot of his writings are online. Some of them have been translated into English. Some of them are just in Spanish. But he's got a much more uh, nuanced view of the whole situation. Okay, exemplifying one of the ways in which the English language lefty press is getting it wrong is, uh, you know, the whole notion that, uh, you know, it was uh, the whole thing was instrumented by the lithium cartel. Because apparently uh, Evo Morales had, uh, just days before the coup, which removed him from power on uh, November 9th, he had canceled a, um, a lithium contract. Well, what this uh, conspiracy theory is overlooking is the fact that uh, he had canceled this lithium contract with a German company in response to protest from the indigenous peoples out there in the salt flats of uh, Potosi Department. And these protesters were, in fact among the protesters who were calling for Evo to step down after last month's 
apparently fraudulent elections. I'm going to withhold saying that they definitely were fraudulent because I don't know, but uh, certainly there have been claims backed up by the OAS for whatever that's worth at this point. So um, by the time Evo had uh, canceled his lithium contract, the protest against him demanding his resignation had already been going strong for many, many days. And in fact, the protesters who were calling for the cancellation of this lithium contract, you know, they were among the ones who were calling for his resignation. And they, they viewed the lithium contract, which was supported by Evo and by the ruling party, the movement towards socialism, and its um, local governor and functionaries on the ground in Potosi, who were also with the, the ruling party, with the movement towards socialism, the MAS, and have also stepped down in the wake of the coup in response to popular pressure. You know, the protesters in Potosi, you know, they had, you know, taken up, uh, you know, the demand for the contract to be canceled, you know, as a part of their general list of grievances against Evo Morales. Okay, so, you know, this notion that the lithium interest instrumented the coup behind the scenes is really reading the situation backwards. You know, cancellation of the of the lithium contract was a a capitulation to the anti-Evo protests which were going on. Okay, and, uh, you know, it has to be said, you know, you would never glean this from the... uh, most of the lefty English language press. But, you know, the, there was a genuine popular uprising against Evo Morales, uh, which included not only very ugly right-wing elements, without a doubt, it did, but also a lot of Evo's own indigenous former support base had also joined the protest against him. It's complicated, all right? And there is nothing to be gained from pretending that it's not complicated, because it is. Now, uh, what we've seen since Evo stepped down is, uh, you know, there's really kind of a power vacuum. A right-wing senator by the name of Janine Añez, who is one of Evo's most bitter opponents, is claiming that um, after the resignation of Evo and um, his vice president, that she's next in line in the presidential succession. And uh, she's claiming that, you know, she's the new president and she's been recognized by the United States and so on. But she does not seem to have a very firm grip on power yet. And there really seems to still be something of a power vacuum in the country. And certainly Evo has definitely continued to have a genuine wide base of support among the indigenous peoples, particularly among the Aymara people of the um, of the highlands, which was always, you know, where his deepest support was. And his supporters have been, you know, holding really angry protests in the streets of La Paz. And, uh, you know, so have his opponents. And uh, there's great potential for violence. And finally, just yesterday, which would have been the, um, the 15th, there actually was a massacre, the first massacre since, um, since the removal of Evo, where in a, a town out in the, um, in the lowland region of Cochabamba, which is where Evo was actually from, uh, you know, there was a, a protest in his support calling for his reinstatement. And the security forces opened fire on it, and uh, at least five people were killed. I'm probably going to be blogging about that later tonight. It should be up on my website, Counter Vortex. Probably by the time this podcast is up, it should be be on my website, countervortex.org. So uh, extremely disturbing situation in Bolivia. Definitely potential for civil war. I hate to say it, but definitely potential for civil war. And, uh, you know... um, the indigenous movement in Bolivia is now divided, okay, between those who continue to support Evo Morales and those who have broken with him. 
precisely because he's been, you know, giving out lithium contracts and, you know, uh, continuing with the extractivist development model and so on, which they view as a betrayal. Uh, What makes it complicated is that, uh, you know, in the interest of getting rid of Evo, some of these leaders of the indigenous movement who have now broken with Evo have sort of, you know, at least kind of formed a de facto alliance with the right wing opposition. So um, it's complicated. Certainly bears very, very close scrutiny. But it has to be acknowledged that, you know, uh, there really was uh, and arguably continues to be a popular uprising going on in Bolivia. And, uh, you know, it was not just a coup and it was not just a popular uprising of the right. Big, substantial right wing content to the protest movement, without a doubt. But it was not completely hegemonic. There was also, you know, the uh, sort of dissident indigenous opposition to uh, to Evo Morales as well. And uh, whether they are now going to be completely betrayed remains to be seen. What kind of, uh, you know, new order is going to emerge in Bolivia? Again, bears very, very close scrutiny. Okay, we're now about three weeks into a massive protest movement in Chile. A nationwide uprising, which uh, began with protests over uh, transit fare hikes in Santiago, but have now escalated into a general uprising against the government of Sebastián Piñera and his neoliberal policies. Uh, the indigenous people of, uh, of Chile in the south of the country, the Mapuche, the largest indigenous group in Chile who have been uh, protesting for their land rights and so on for many years, have now joined the uprising. And in a concession to try to buy off the protesters, the Piñera government has agreed just now to um, allowing a referendum next year on whether or not to uh, draft a new constitution for the country. So uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, first of all, to see whether, in fact, it succeeds in chilling out the protesters. <laughs> I'm not sure that it will at this point. Um, and also, uh, if indeed there is going to be a, um, a new constituent assembly to draft a new constitution for Chile, this will be an opportunity for the Mapuche people to um, actually uh, have uh, greater provisions for their territorial autonomy and control of their own land and resources actually written into the Chilean constitution. going to be... Uh, Again, very important situation to watch closely. Ecuador. Okay, it seems to be over for the moment, but um, last month, October, saw a tremendous uprising in Ecuador, sparked by uh, moves by President Lenin Moreno to um, lift subsidies on fuel. The uprising finally ended after 10 days of nationwide protests. On uh, October 13th, when finally... uh, President Moreno blinked and capitulated to the protesters' demand and uh, overturned the uh, decree which would have eliminated subsidies on fuel prices and agreed to negotiation with the, uh, with the protesters. And again, this was largely led by the indigenous movement in Ecuador, which is extremely powerful and has, over the years, over the course of the past generation or so, has brought down successive governments in nationwide uprisings. So uh, they scored a real victory, and it's going to be interesting to uh, see What happens in the uh, negotiations, which are um, underway now with the government of Lenin Moreno and whether uh, the protests in Ecuador are going to be reignited or if there will be further concessions from the Moreno government and they can consolidate their victories further. Peru, just last month, again, it seems to have subsided for the moment, but last month there were huge protests in Peru when President Martin Vizcarra, moved to um, dissolve the country's Congress 
And this was in response to numerous corruption scandals. So the protesters that were actually supporting President Vizcarra's move to dissolve Congress for several days after he had issued his decree dissolving Congress, lawmakers from the right-wing opposition had actually occupied the congressional chambers, refusing to move, refusing to, uh, to vacate the premises. And there was kind of, you know, a standoff for control of the congressional chambers. And there were big protests out in the streets demanding that those um, right-wing lawmakers, in fact, leave under the slogan, que se vayan todos, throw them all out. Okay, another big success, Uruguay. There were elections there on October 22nd in which the incumbent left-wing president, um, Tabaré Vasquez, was uh, challenged from the right. That's going to go to a runoff, so there isn't a clear victory yet. But the real victory is that the right-wing opposition had organized a a referendum on an anti-crime initiative that would create a new special uh, paramilitary police force, which would be empowered to carry out night raids and so on. Um, and uh, basically, uh, again, you know, um, stiffen up the criminal code quite significantly. And on October 22nd, there was a massive march filling the streets of Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay. Many, many tens of thousands of people demanding that this initiative be defeated. And in fact, it was. So uh, once again, a, uh, a mass mobilization which actually achieved a victory in Uruguay. Okay, turning to uh, Central America... There was a big protest in uh, Honduras, which began last month after the brother of the sitting right-wing president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was uh, convicted by a federal jury here in New York on narco-trafficking charges. (laughs) And um, actually, uh, it, it was revealed in the course of the trial that his brother, the president, was actually, you know, on the take from from the drug cartels. And this sparked a, a tremendous uprising in Honduras, demanding that the president step down. And it's interesting, in the protest in Honduras, the U.S. embassy has been a particular target of the protesters' rage for reasons which are entirely too obvious. (laughs) So, um, you know, very interesting that the protesters in Honduras are viewing uh, U.S. imperialism as an enemy, whereas the protesters in uh, Hong Kong are viewing U.S. imperialism at least as a potential ally or something, you know, a force on the global stage where they would like to woo as an ally. Again, another example of the, uh, the contradictions which we're facing elsewhere in Central America. Got very little coverage, but big protest last month in Costa Rica over uh, budget cuts at the uh, country's public universities. Massive student walkouts, students filling the streets, and actually... Uh, one direct face-to-face negotiations with uh, President Carlos Alvarado. Uh, he was forced to actually meet with, uh, with student protest leaders. So, again, uh, significant victory. Not sure um, if the demands of the protesters have been met. Again, going to be an important one to watch. Turning to the Caribbean, big protests going on in Haiti, as people may be aware, demanding the resignation of President Jovenel Moise, again, over um, corruption charges. And in Puerto Rico, a Commonwealth territory or colony of the United States. This was back in August, but there was actually a successful protest movement, which succeeded in forcing the resignation of the governor. Again, over charges of corruption and insensitivity to the needs of the people. Okay, the Middle East, first and foremost, 
massive protest going on in Iraq now. Over the course of the past several weeks since the protest broke out last month, something like 300 people have now been killed by the security forces. And here's an interesting little political dilemma or contradiction. While the protesters in Iraq certainly have no love for the United States, which has been backing up the brutal and corrupt government of Iraq, they also have no love for Iran, which has also been backing up the brutal and corrupt government of Iraq. (laughs) Despite the fact that Iran and the United States are supposedly enemies, they're actually, they've both been backing the same government in Iraq. And in fact, the protesters in Iraq now, in addition to, uh, you know, protesting corruption and pressing their economic grievances, they have also been protesting what they see as dominant Iranian influence over the Baghdad government. And in fact, in some of the massacres which we have witnessed of protesters in Iraq over the past month and change, in addition to the official security forces firing on protesters, we've also seen Iranian-backed Shiite militias firing on protesters. Similarly, in Lebanon, huge protest movement going on, initially sparked by the government's plan to impose a tax on text messaging, believe it or not, but has, you know, again, escalated into a more general uprising against the government. And once again, the Iranian-backed Hezbollah has uh, been organizing, you know, goon squads to attack the protesters. Hezbollah supporters actually succeeded in dispersing a uh, a protest encampment, which had been uh, erected in a public square in Beirut last month. But uh, this was after the protesters scored a victory with the resignation of Prime Minister Saad Hariri. This uh, won very little media attention, but just before the uprising broke out in Lebanon, there was a national teacher strike in Jordan, which again scored a victory. The strike was finally ended after several weeks. The longest public sector strike ever in Jordan finally ended when the uh, government capitulated to their demands and instated higher wages. Protests uh, sweeping across Turkey, especially the Kurdish east of the country, since um, the increasingly dictatorial government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, unhappy with recent election results, began uh, you know, arbitrarily using his executive power to remove governors and mayors from office, governors and mayors from, uh, you know, the, of the left and basically and, and of, uh, of the Kurdish movement in the east of the country, sparking a protest movement basically led by the Kurdish-supported People's Democratic Party for, uh, you know, basic democratic rights and uh, municipal autonomy. All of this, of course, is uh, very redolent of... Um, the Arab Spring. Of course, Turkey is not an Arab country. This concerns Turks and Kurds rather than Arabs. But what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in Lebanon, what's happening in Jordan, and uh, another non-Arab country, which is a part of the general region, Iran itself, uh, you know, has periodically over the past months seen uh, protests over economic grievances. And uh, this just happened again. Just today, big protests broke out in Iran, again, over fuel prices. All of this is redolent of the Arab Revolution protests of 2011. And in fact, there is a sense that the Arab Revolution is back on, that it's been reignited. Egypt, where, you know, the uh, harsh dictatorship of 
Abdel Fattah Sisi has been consolidated in a kind of a thermidor for the Egyptian revolution. Uh, that happened all the way back in uh, 2013 now. So it's been quite a few years uh, that, you know, things have been very, very closed and repressive in Egypt. And finally, in September, uh, the first big anti-Sisi protest erupted. And two other countries in the greater Arab world, as it were, where uh, there have been anti-regime protests going on for several months now are Algeria and Sudan. In Sudan, the movement has succeeded in forcing the resignation of longtime despot Omar Bashir, but we'll see what kind of uh, new regime is going to emerge. The protests are continuing. And in Algeria, earlier this year, the protests succeeded in ousting longtime despot Abdelaziz Bouteflika. But the protests are continuing, and we'll see what kind of new regime is going to emerge. Okay, elsewhere in Africa, huge protests going on in uh, Ethiopia for the past several weeks, with up to um, 70 people dead. And here there's a real, um, a real ethnic dimension to the protests. It's interesting. I'm not sure if the Oromo people actually constitute a majority in Ethiopia, but they definitely constitute at least a plurality. They are the, the largest ethnic group in the country. And yet they've, um, they really, uh, they, haven't held, they haven't held power. It's always been uh, minority peoples who have controlled the regime, most recently the Tigrayans. And uh, there's been a lot of um, land grabbing by the government and its, you know, crony capitalist clients. Uh, of traditional Oromo lands, particularly around in central uh, Ethiopia, around the capital, around Addis Ababa, where, uh, you know, traditional farming lands of the Oromo people have been illegally confiscated to facilitate urban development on the outskirts of the capital, sparking righteous anger, as we can imagine. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of it has been channeled into ethnic hatred, it appears, and in addition to, you know, fighting the security forces, a lot of these um, Oromo youth who have been taken to the street have also been attacking perceived ethnic enemies, including minority peoples. There was one particularly ugly incident where uh, in a town on the outskirts of Addis Ababa, where eight members of the, uh, the Gamo people were apparently killed by a, a mob of Oromo youth. So, I mean, this is disturbing. I mean, not even, I mean, any ethnic attacks, of course, are <clears throat> reprehensible, but, you know, not even attacking the, uh, you know, the ruling elite, the ruling Tigray and elite, but attacking, you know, a, a minority indigenous people uh, because they don't happen to be Oromo. I support the demands of the Oromo protesters for, you know, protection of their traditional lands and so on. And I recognize that their grievances are legitimate. But it seems that there's a, a, uh, an ugly element which is animating the protest movement, an ugly sort of ethnic chauvinist element. So definitely going to be uh, an important one to watch. I wish it was getting more media coverage. Hardly anybody is covering it. And the accounts which, you know, I have written up about this on my website, countervortex.org, have largely been drawing from uh, local sources in Ethiopia and East Africa because it's won very, very little international coverage. Okay, Uganda. Huge student protests happening in Uganda over tuition hikes at the National University. And in fact, uh, you know, the campus at Makarere University in Kampala has actually been occupied by military troops. Sure wish this was getting more coverage. And uh, finally, Guinea 
in West Africa, where President Alpha Conde is technically supposed to step down next year due to term limits, but he is broaching changing the Constitution to allow him to hold on to power. I will point out a situation which is somewhat analogous to what, uh, you know, Evo Morales did in Bolivia to hold on to power despite constitutional term limits, sparking a great deal of anger. So there have been big protests going on in Guinea with several killed by the security forces over the course of the past weeks. So, uh, you know, that's several countries around the world where there's like massive uprisings going on and very, very significant unrest at this moment. But like I say, there seems to be less of a utopian aspect to it now than there was back in 2011, and more real serious anger and desperation. And in addition to the challenge of the protest movements becoming transnational and actually hooking up with each other and actually trying to build solidarity across borders against the capitalist system, wouldn't that be nice? And we actually saw the beginnings of that kind of thing starting to emerge in 2011 before, you know... It all went wrong. Uh, we haven't seen too much of that this time around yet. I will be optimistic and, and add the word yet. And even within the countries where these protests are taking place, some problematic and ugly politics have been demonstrated, such as the ethnic chauvinism, which we've seen in Hong Kong and in Ethiopia, and uh, the really complicated situation in, um, in Bolivia right now where... The indigenous movement is divided. Some elements of the indigenous movement still supporting Evo Morales and actually demanding his return to power. And others having thrown in their lot with the opposition, despite the fact that there are like really ugly, racist, anti-indigenous elements of the opposition. And it's going to be very, very important to keep a very, very close eye on Bolivia in, um, in the weeks to come and see what kind of, a, what kind of new order emerges there. So... Uh, the last thing I'm going to say is that the uprising in Chile began with protests over uh, transit fare hikes in Santiago and um, the uh, crackdown on fare beaters on the New York City subway system here in New York City has also sparked protest out in Brooklyn recently. There was a video that went viral of a kid who had apparently jumped the turnstile being brutalized by the police in a Brooklyn subway station. And there was another incident where um, the uh, police actually apparently drew their guns on a, a kid who uh, was believed to be a fair beater. And there have been big protests about this in Brooklyn over the course of the past few weeks. So, uh, well, you know, all I can say is that when the, uh, the protests began over um, fair hikes in Santiago, I'm not sure that anybody could have anticipated that it would have turned into a nationwide uprising. So uh, maybe, you know, these protests that are going on over... Um, the uh, police crackdown on fare jumping on the uh, on the New York City subways in Brooklyn. Who knows? Maybe this will be the beginning of a national uprising in the United States and uh, against President Donald Trump. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> against uh, racist and brutal policing and economic uh, oppression generally. Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, um, in the event that that actually happens, it's going to be even more incumbent upon us here in the United States to try to um, bring a clear political analysis to bear and to try to build transnational solidarity. And who knows, I really, really hope that a year from now, at the end of 2020, I'll be able to look back and say that, you know, this was it. This was the year that a real 
international revolutionary movement began to reemerge with its eye on the ball, one that was serious about transnational solidarity, one which was opposed to capitalism and dictatorship everywhere, and one which repudiated ethnic scapegoating and imperial divide and conquer strategies. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what happens, won't we? Stay tuned. I am following all of these situations very closely on my website, countervortex.org. You can check it out there. Please be in touch and tell me what you think. This has been the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.